Hi, we are in a new episode of the History and Politics podcast, and we have a great guest. We have Anthony Comegna, which is the Assistant Editor for Intellectual History at the Cato Institute. Hi, Anthony. Hello. Thank you for having me. So how did you come to, to, to be interested in, in, in history and in libertarianism and, and in, in your current work that, that, that tried to, to connect both? Well, um, my How I Became a Libertarian story starts with a big basket of books that my mom had in the corner of our living room, and one of them was Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, and from a very young age it always sort of mystified me because it was huge, and it was very different from all the romance novels that were in the rest of the basket, and I asked my mom if I could read it when I was, I don't know, eight or ten or something, and she said I would have to wait a while before I could understand it, and that was captivating to me. Um, so by the time I was a little older and in high school, I picked it up again and started reading it, and uh, after surfing for Ayn Rand on YouTube and in my first days on college campus, um, I found my way down the deep rabbit hole to, uh, to all sorts of different kinds of libertarianism. Um, and then my interest in history uh, was developing in college because I was a history major, and I was looking for a project to do for my honors thesis, and while I was in a library one day, I was looking for books in Jacksonian America. That was the subject I was leaning toward, and it was Larry White's collection of essays by a Jacksonian editorialist named William Leggett. Uh, this was published back in the 80s, and I read through that, and I fell in love with the writings of this guy, William Leggett, um, and his version of radical Jacksonianism really interested me. I was fascinated by the bank war and how people could have been so whipped up in the era about a subject as dry and boring to us as national banking. Um, it, it just mystified me. There was something really interesting going on in the intellectual history of this period. And I was very attracted to William Leggett, so I wrote my honors thesis on him. Um, and then I decided that I needed to pursue the subject in college uh, or in graduate school because nobody had written about this aside from this book by Larry White. There was basically no treatment of William Leggett and his followers over the next several decades um, who adopted the name Loco Foco. So in graduate school, I spent my time uh, doing my dissertation, um, which I bill as the first and only history of the Loco Foco movement. And uh, now that I work at libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute, I try to get the word out that this is a crucial and uh, uh, far overlooked element of libertarian history that, that deserves a revival. So how we could describe the local focus? How? Well, I, I would say that they are not equivalent to modern libertarians. Um, they, they do not, they did not approach the world with the same set of values, uh, but their ideas are an absolutely sort of fundamental precursor to what we know as the libertarian movement. The special thing about the Loco Focos is that uh, they, they started as radical members of what was coming to be known as the Democratic Party. Um, 
and their political roots go back to 1828, which is when the, the first working men's parties were formed for uh, local and state elections. And they adopted the economic radicalism of the Jackson administration, so his war against the Bank of the United States especially excited them, uh, because they saw it as a war on monopoly powers that held over from old world politics and was infecting New World democracy and republicanism and distorting it in all sorts of unhealthy and corrupting ways. So they, they saw Jackson's war against the, the National Bank, the Second Bank of the United States, as part of the essential American project of, like Thomas Paine said, beginning the world from the right end. That is, you know, building power and governmental legitimacy from the bottom up, from the people themselves, their individual sovereignty and not the authority of some king or some charter-granting, you know, legislature even. Um, these kinds of special powers and privileges accorded to corporations, especially banks in the period, disturbed them because they saw it, you know, as essentially either a, a nest of conspiracies by, by old-world investors to still fleece the American people, uh, or they saw it as an attempt by centralizers and, and power aggrandizers uh, in America to sort of foist old world institutions on Americans even though they tried to shed themselves of that kind of government. Um, and they, they were very they were very very close to modern libertarians in that they also uh, did not overlook the plight of minorities. They uh, believed in democracy as an effective way of, of governing ourselves, um, but they thought that democracy too was a dangerous thing and it had strict limitations based on the equal universal rights of, of all individuals. So uh, many of them took the leap to abolitionism along with William Leggett. Um, Leggett converted to abolitionism when uh, in 1835 the New York Abolitionist Society sent a sack full of abolitionist literature to Charleston, South Carolina. And the postmaster, a man named Alfred Huger in Charleston, uh, basically looked the other way as a angry mob of Charlestonians broke into the post office, stole the abolitionist literature before it could be delivered, and they burned it in the town square. So the postmaster looked the other way while, while this mob violated the rights of, of these northern abolitionists to use the federal mails. And then Jackson's postmaster general, Amos Kendall, also looked the other way and said, ah, well, I'm not going to pay attention. Um, so de facto, the administration was giving its support to a flagrant violation of citizens' rights so that they could protect the monopoly powers and privileges of slaveholding planters. This deeply disturbed Leggett and many around him. Um, he spoke out against the administration in no uncertain terms, and they excommunicated him from the party. So the, the Washington Globe officially read him out of the Democratic Party, and he became a pariah among everybody invested in the, the growing party system. Um, but the movement that he began in that moment um, became the guiding light for abolitionism and anti-monopoly over the next 20 years. And it, it transformed America in some pretty profound ways that get overlooked. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, 
I think that that kind of radicalism that 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 I think it's it's sometimes what it's miss about the about the the history and and the political philosophy of libertarianism. I think that particularly in America, but also more or less in in many places, libertarianism has been associated with with the right and with conservatism. And yeah. I will not deny that there are certain elements of, of particular the American right that, that had some. Uh, libertarian streaks, um, Barry Water and and others, and but it, it, the problem is that I think they they kind of erase the the, the, the participation of some more radicals um, elements of the libertarian history and, and characters like Carhez, which is uh, uh, I am a huge fan of Carhez. Actually, the the reason why I became a libertarian was I found a, one of his his articles and I I said whatever these because that article was very early and he didn't use the term libertarian but I say whatever this guy is I'm going to be that and, and that's how I became a libertarian but yeah I mean I think that that is kind of the the the, the, the huge intellectual task that, that I guess the Cato Institute and is is trying to portray least libertarianism in a more broad way than, than other institutions, I guess. Well, I, I start out with a slight caution there. Our mission at libertarianism.org, um, which is sort of the philosophy arm of the Cato Institute, our mission is to present libertarianism as a very broad set of traditions. Uh, it has many different kinds of intellectual strands running through it. And part of what I want to do as a historian is disentangle some of those and make it more clear to people where they might fall in the, the different uh, variations of our pretty wide, many hundreds of years long tradition. And I, I think you're right that the, the right-wing associations with libertarianism, that's, that's mainly a product of the 20th century and really the, the second half of the 20th century. And before that, it was it was overtly left-wing and radically left-wing, for the most part, in, in almost all iterations. You know, as I understand the history of this, at least, um, Benjamin Tucker was the first American to really start using the term libertarian as a self-identifier somewhere in the late 1870s or early 1880s. Um, and before that, it was used in Europe sort of here and there. Um, to identify somebody who just had a general preference for individual liberty or for liberty of any sort. Um, and, you know, in America, there were very different sorts of words that people would use to describe what is essentially the same package. Uh, whatever Tucker meant when he called himself a libertarian, there were plenty of people exactly like that who just used different words in prior generations. Loco Foco was one of them. I think, you know, Tom Paine, uh, was, just like William Leggett was the icon for Locofocoism, Tom Paine was the intellectual leader of earlier generations, and, you know, he never used the word libertarian, but my God, that man is certainly a libertarian. Um, and, you know, I like to take the history back to all sorts of uh, different iterations from below, too. Um, you know, I think too often we, in the modern day, get caught up in the great big names like Adam Smith or John Locke or, you know, whoever else, but very big, big, important people who wrote big books and did big things. But what about all the multitudes of small people who did important things, too, and who, you know, 
uh, like like <clears throat> one of my favorite subjects in this vein is pirates, um, because I think in especially the golden age of piracy, which is in the early 1700s, at least in the Atlantic world, there were all sorts of pirate crews who were living overtly libertarian lives on their ships. They were organizing their own societies, ship by ship, according to their own rules that they made themselves that were actually very equitable and peaceful and, you know, well-intentioned. And, you know, <laughs> these are examples of, of people who made it to the margins of power in the world, like the, the very limits of, of what the, the powerful people could reach, and they pushed beyond it. And they determined to live freely, and they did. And there's a lot we can learn from all sorts of different types of libertarians throughout history, like the pirates or like the, the wild-eyed religious fanatics that are everywhere during the English Civil Wars. But they're leading important movements that go very important places. And if, if, we, if we only get caught up in the history from above and the, the big, grand, exciting things in textbooks, then we're, we're going to miss most of the libertarian tradition, I think. Yeah, I, I I met a Colombian libertarian who who have moved to to Iceland and is currently studying his master's there, and he's doing his thesis on in in a stateless um, in law in the stateless medieval Iceland. It's, I mean, there are a lot of, of of interesting subjects to analyze. I mean, obviously they didn't identify as libertarian in the modern sense, but they certainly had a lot of of the of this kind of, of libertarian leanings and uh, yeah, I mean there there is a podcast I have forgotten, but but that has also spoke of, with some economic historians of Latin America and and for example several countries of Latin America uh, used to have free banking in the nineteenth century and and, and it, it goes against the argument that that a lot of sometimes the more reactionary elements among the right that, that try to justify um, blocking immigration from Latin America saying that the Latin Americans love big government but it was very radical in some of the influence of, of I mean, the influence of, of liberal ideas was fundamental to the development of the independence pro, uh, project in, in, in Latin America. So, so in some parts, it was even very radical ideas, and 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 yes, it's, it's very. I think that that it it will help uh, the 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 knowledge of 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 a more broad history to to people to understand libertarianism better. But in that context, I, I was going to ask. How do you see the, the the issue with with the Nancy McLean book that has generated a lot of controversy? They're basically accusing James Buchanan and a lot of the libertarian movement of, of being, uh, if not being directly white supremacists, more or less in alliance with the white supremacists. Was very kind of strange. Well, uh, again, I'll start with a cautionary note because her I have not read her book. Um, nor am I thoroughly familiar with her arguments or the critiques of it by any means. Uh, it's, it's too far outside of my area of expertise. I, I just simply don't have that kind of background for 20th century you know, history of economic thought to have engaged in any way with, with Nancy McLean. Um, though I do find interesting uh, the insistence that uh, Buchanan was 
deeply influenced by John C. Calhoun. Um, because while people whose opinion I trust on the matter, at least, like Phil Magnus, um, while, you know, he's very certain that there's, there's no reason to think that Buchanan was deeply influenced by Calhoun at all. Um, in fact, maybe just the opposite. Uh, plenty of libertarians have been and have had nothing but great things to say about Calhoun, despite his obvious despicability. Uh, the fact that he was a disgusting human being by any kind of libertarian standard. And yet, and yet, we have the exact same needs for our history as everybody else does. We want it to confirm our biases, whatever they are. And I have to say, whenever I hear a libertarian have good things to say about Calhoun, I wonder what their biases are. And I am somebody who thinks that there is a so-called pipeline between the alt-right and libertarianism. And I think that we libertarian academics have a responsibility to be forthright about how our values as libertarians affect the kind of, of historical work that we do um, so that there's no lack of clarity about why we might be saying something uh, nice about John C. Calhoun and his legacy and his contributions. Uh, I think they are practically nothing. There is very little of value in what Calhoun has to say for a, for a libertarian. So it does, it does make me wonder why some people have great things to say about him and what intention they have behind making um, his sort of, of arguments. Um, and, you know, we, our tendency when talking about whether there is a problem of racism in libertarianism, I think our, our tendency is to try to ignore the issue um, and, and hope that... Uh, you know, there really are no problems because, after all, these people are not libertarians. But, you know, if they're out there calling themselves libertarians and they're trying to, to portray libertarian history as something that has a, a place for John C. Calhoun, um, I think that sends the wrong message to people who are trying to figure out what libertarianism is all about. Calhoun certainly would, <laughs> would be shocked at, at the assertion that Nancy McLean makes that he has anything to do with modern libertarianism. That would probably horrify him. <laughs> uh, so I think that she is not only, uh, she's, she's wrong in some way, but it's our responsibility to, to, you know, make it abundantly clear that we do not have any place for him in our way of thinking. Um, and that his ideas were crafted specifically to serve the interests of his class, his planter class. Uh, and this is a man who, who his career was built as a series of justifications for government intervention to keep people in chains to service folks like him. And that's how he thought the world should be. That was the purpose of the concurrent majority in protecting minority rights within the system to, to his mind. That, that, that was the minority that mattered, right? The planters. And so uh, I, I don't think that, you know, McLean makes a good point that Buchanan uh, has anything to do with, with adopting Calhoun's ideas, but we need to be very clear that the people who do are not being libertarians or consistent with the, the actual historical traditions that they say they ascribe to.
Yeah, I mean, someone who is from Peru, I, the 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 freedom movement, the the which is most known for Maria Vargasiosa, the, the 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 writer, uh, was a lot of times accused that it was trying to cater basically to to the to the wide upper middle class in, in, in Lima, which is the main city of Peru, and, and, and that, that it forgot kind of the the more um, uh, the, the the majority of the population that was the reason why he lost against Fujimori, who was uh, more of a of a technocrat, a very heterodox uh, politician. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I am conscious of, about this, and, and and in Brazil it's very very sad because some people who technically identify as libertarian are are now supporting a politician like, um, and in and funny is running in the social liberal party, which is Jair Bolsonaro. Who many think he he's a fascist. He he's a very extreme right candidate. I think. Uh, even Duterte or, or, or Trump are, are fairly more moderate in more of the issues than, 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 than Bolsonaro. And it's very strikingly seeing that kind of, of collaborations. Yeah, it, to me at least, I mean, this takes me back to the, the story of the Locofocos, because I think that once you, you put their decades-long history as a movement together, what you see step by step is the corrupting influence of politics. And any sort of involvement in party politics, what happens is, over the years, uh, whenever the Locofocos get involved in party politics and they have built-in interests in that system now, uh, it diverts them and, and uh, it separates their movement into people who are more willing to compromise and dilute the message and dilute the policy and more people who are unwilling to compromise and unwilling to dilute their message. And there's always a split. Every new time, the, the community splits more and more. And in the end, they disappear. And we don't even remember who they are. And I'm worried that that sort of thing is, you know, has, has been a recurring theme enough that we very well might be in another one of those periods now. And honestly, it makes me concerned for the history moving forward of this term libertarian. You know, we're, to my mind, we're in sort of a cultural battle to figure out who has ownership over that term and who actually gets to call themselves with reliability and, and uh, uh, a degree of truth a libertarian. Who gets to actually deploy that term? Uh, is it the people who are willing to um, support Trump because they want lower taxes, or at least they think they're going to get lower taxes out of it? Uh, you know that, or or people who will make excuses for the administration because they have you know this Hoppian perspective on immigration or something. They they don't want people speaking other languages near them, and so uh, they adopt some weird version of libertarianism um, and pass it off as as part of this grand tradition of liberal ideas. It's not. It's a bizarre outlier, and. You know, we're, I, I hope that we're not losing this cultural battle to define libertarianism. I think there are more of us out there in the world than there are other folks, but uh, it, it is an active concern because we've been here before. 
and we've lost before. Yeah, I, and I was going to ask you, how do you see people, historians in academia, studying libertarianism? I mean, Jennifer Burns is probably the most known for her work on, on Ayn Rand. Uh, I think she was invited to The Daily Show, which was kind of surprising that The Daily Show will invite a historian, but, but it was really interesting here, the conversation we had. And, and I don't know how, how you see the, 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 the history of the interest in academia in the history of libertarianism. Well, uh, <laughs> let me tell you a brief anecdote. I was in a graduate seminar uh, many years ago now, and we were reading some book, I forget exactly which one, but the, the author said something about the labor theory of value. And I, was, I brought that up to my professor in the seminar, and I was like, well, wait, I mean, this guy's talking about the labor theory of value, but, I mean, nobody thinks that anymore, right? Like, don't, shouldn't we pause and talk about that? This is a ridiculous idea. <laughs> And he seemed kind of flabbergasted that I would say such a thing because, of course, he, he believed in the labor theory of value. <laughs> and it just floored me. And I was like, well, you know, it strikes me that like part of the problem with historians is that they don't know anything about economics. And he replied, well, economists don't know anything about history either. So, like, what's your deal, man? You know, he, and, and it was as if he was saying, look, I don't think there's any value to what economists do. So <laughs> don't expect me to, to take their word for it that, that something is valuable because of, I don't know, some subjectivity voodoo going on. Um, and, you know, that just really stuck out to me as a moment that, that uh, made very clear that we have to read, like as, as libertarian academics, we have to read all of their stuff, everything from mainstream history to Marxist history to, you know, whatever else um, – we have to read all of their stuff, but boy, they never come into contact with our stuff. They never give it a shot, don't care for it at all, don't see any value in doing the history of libertarianism or thinking about it as part of the wider world. <laughs> and so it, it might as well not exist. Um, and there are a, a few isolated cases you could find out there of academics like, like Burns or like, I don't know, Nancy McLean even, who... who have spent some time at least um, um, doing libertarian history from a non-libertarian perspective, but my God, there needs to be a lot more of that. Uh, that's another part of what I am interested in doing as a historian is it's going to be harder than talking to libertarians, but I would at least like to talk to some mainstream historians about how they need to care about this stuff. They also, you know, change happens on the margins. That's, that's something that we get from Karl Menger in the Austrian tradition. All change happens on the margins. That's where value is established, and that's where people make their choices. Marginal considerations. And uh, <clears throat> if, if historians cared even a little bit about the history of libertarianism, if they made even a marginal effort to, to ferret out what impact we have had on the world, they would see that uh, it's much, much, much more important than they were giving it credit for. Um, and it would transform an awful lot about what they think about the world. It might even bring us a little bit closer together in terms of our politics. Uh, because like I said, I think most of libertarian history, hundreds and hundreds of years of it, right up to the last 60 or 70, it's been a profoundly left-wing movement. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and how do you see in graduate students, do you see more interest than, than, than your time in grad school? Or, or are there more graduate students that the number of current historians of libertarianism or, or not? Well, I would, mm, that's a tough question because my personal experience in my graduate program Uh, was that students also had absolutely no interest in whatever it was weird stuff that I was doing. Um, and they pretty much had contempt for <laughs> comments that I would make from my libertarian perspective on whatever we were discussing in a seminar. That doesn't go for all of them. And I, I have uh, maintained some pretty good intellectual exchanges with, with some people from my graduate program. But I think that was the overwhelming reaction They, frankly, they dismissed my point of view uh, to the same extent that they dismissed the structural Marxist point of view um, as some sort of outdated relic of a bygone era that makes no sense in our world today. Um, so that both of those elements were slightly surprising to me. I expected graduate students to be a little more open-minded to my always anti-war point of view, for example, and some other elements of my libertarianism. But I was also surprised that they had no time for the, the old school Marxism either. And um, then, you know, I did come into contact throughout my time with places like IHS, the Institute for Humane Studies, and Liberty Fund, and other organizations that work with grad students and professors. And there's a, there is a whole big wide world of up and coming libertarian historians and academics out there and we're, we're publishing an awful lot, writing an awful lot. And, you know, I think the, the more the better. Um, it is a growing number, which is very good. I, I, I get the feeling that for several decades, economists so dominated within libertarianism that um, virtually no one started careers specifically as a historian. There were an awful lot of economic historians Or, or histories of historians of economic thought among libertarians, but not many uh, uh, full-time historians, let's say, who just just wrote history. And I think, I hope, we're correcting some of that and just uh, balancing the numbers a bit more. Yeah, that's that's certainly a very complex task. I, I, as far as I know, the now there is a a huge uh, rebuild of the Marxist and radical left. And and, and it's very curious because I, I was writing an article about Jasper McLevy, which is, was a, a mayor in Connecticut. And, and he's a very curious case. I, I mean, Jesse Walker previously had written about him. He was, uh, um, uh, for not knowing a better term, more or less a fiscally conservative socialist. He was a socialist that was against taxes, but it was very kind of strange, a very limited I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it was a very kind of uh, an anti-war also. I think that that's, that's a kind of interesting combination, I think, because that's probably the... Uh, I think he, he could be a, a more or less a middle point between Because I think, for example, Carl Oglesby, the, the president of the SDS, was kind of a middle point between the more radical anarchist uh, left libertarians and the, I don't know how to, to put it, what now we will call libertarians. 
he, he I think he he believes in, in some role for the city, but at the same time, he his foreign policy was uh, more or less was the same that the more anarchist libertarians, and it was interesting. I think there there maybe could be a it will be a very curious moment, I guess, in in politically because I think that Trump era is going to generate a lot of political engagement in the youth that that for a lot of time it seemed had been uh, seeing politics from from apart and now it's going to be involved and and maybe libertarians and uh, promoting the more radical elements of authoritarianism will will try to to appeal to to that new base yeah and it, it's you know <laughs> historians should never try to predict the future that's because they're nearly always wrong um, and if you understand what you're doing you know that things are always contingent on human actions that are based on motivations that are incredibly hard to understand. So don't try to predict future events, not if you're a historian. Um, and so here's, here's part of the amazing thing to me about both the Jacksonian period and the time we're living in right now. We usually date the Jacksonian era from about 1815 to about 1845, from the end of the War of 1812, when there was a, a giant boom in, in internal construction projects like canals and turnpike roads and eventually railroads. It transformed communications and transportation, politics, uh, all sorts of things about our culture the way people interacted with each other and exchanged goods around the world, the standard of living, every, everything about somebody's life in the United States changed in that 30-year period. And by the end of it, you have people communicating their thoughts instantaneously by electricity across the continent. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing, um, astonishing leap in just a 30-year period, and it totally transforms society. And that is exactly the kind of period that we're living in right now, especially if you follow, you know, a lot of the deeper tech news um, in things like artificial intelligence development. I mean, we're on the edge. We're living through a technological explosion uh, like none other since the Jacksonian period. And we should expect virtually everything about our world to change in ways that we can't predict or control. And that should be the libertarian message culturally, I think. A sort of libertarian cultural futurism that embraces change, embraces the spontaneity of it, and the lack of knowledge that we have about where things are going, and cautions people to be better as they go forward. You know, uh, that is what somebody like William Leggett built his short life on for just a few years after after the burning of the abolitionist mails that got him excommunicated from the Democratic Party. Uh, he only lived for a few more years, but in that time, he became the country's foremost disunionist. He wanted to break the country apart because it would make it easier for slaves to escape, and it would make it easier to abolish slavery in the South. He wanted the Union to secede, or the, he wanted the North to secede from the Union and stop you know, uh, uh, abiding slaveholders in their midst and protecting them with, with federal power and legitimacy. And, you know, he, he was constantly telling people the truth as he saw it. And 
cautioning them to be good and to be better than they think they might be, you know, to always check their premises and check it against their, the evidence before them and their own thoughts and feelings about what's right and wrong. Don't take the dictates of party. Don't listen to, you know, people telling you that you have to have a certain class interest or race interest or whatever else. Um, do what you think is right. Do it the best that you can. And, you know, if things don't work out well, you need to take comfort in the knowledge that you did the right thing. And, I, you know, I don't know what better message that libertarians could offer people. Uh, and if they don't listen, well, I, I guess God help them. But, you know, as, as the late Ralph Rako said, uh, these ideas are worth talking about still. They're worth, you know, it's worth saying that somebody was out there saying these things still. Somebody was keeping these good ideas alive still. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how the, the youth, <laughs> I don't know what the youth think or how they will vote or how they will do anything. But um, I really, I really hope they turn out more libertarian than past generations because the, the world would be better for it. Yeah, with that, I think we could leave it here. So where the, the people could follow your work? Well, uh, I do the podcast called Liberty Chronicles every Tuesday. Um, so you can, you can follow us on Twitter and always send us questions. Give us a rating and review on iTunes if you like the show. That's a big help. Um, I publish several things every week at libertarianism.org, where we also have all sorts of free books, document readers, and republished libertarian classics are available there. Um, and we have an encyclopedia of libertarianism, so you can skim through your favorite subjects and find more in our archives about it. Um, and you can always catch me on Twitter, too, at Dr. Loco Foco. I like, uh, I like talking with people, so go ahead and get in touch. So, thanks, Anthony. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Camille. You have a good day.